All right, so uh, welcome everyone and thank you so much for being here. Uh, but I am very excited to welcome you all here this evening. My name is Michael Fraud. I am the Assistant Program Director for Drisha. Very excited to be welcoming everyone here tonight as part of our pre-Purim learning. Uh, we are here together uh, for uh, Ayaka, Searching for God in Megillat Esther with Rabbi David Silver. Uh, Rabbi Silver is the founder and dean of Drisha, which works in both New York and Israel on providing Jewish education to all. Uh, Rabbi Silver, many of you have, have probably learned with Rabbi Silver before, uh, but uh, for those of you who have not, uh, he received his rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University and is a recipient of the Covenant Award for Excellence in Innovative Jewish Education. Rabbi Silver is also the author of two books, uh, A Passover Haggadah, Go Forth and Learn, as well as For Such a Time as This, Biblical Reflections in the Book of Esther. So we are very excited to have everyone here for this class, which is going to be talking about the Megillah, which uh, potentially more than any other book of the Bible lends itself to a number of different readings. This class is going to suggest two different readings of the Megillah. Uh, it, we will be talking about uh, the concept of a hidden God, uh, contrasting a reading where goal is uh, a reading where God is wholly absent, as well as a reading where God is fully present. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, okay, so the Megillah is a, without question, a singular book of our Bible. Uh, for one thing, it's a book in which God never speaks. And in point of fact, God's name is never mentioned. There may be a couple of hints uh, as to God's name, and one in particular is interesting. But fundamentally, uh, it really is a book where God seems to be not present uh, at all bottom line. It's also a book which has other ambiguities. Uh, for example, the Talmud has a dispute, and it's found in the Medrash as well, about Ahasuerus, the king, king who was in the Megillah, one might say the king of the world, 127 states, and um, what kind of person is this king? Though the Talmud has a dispute, according to one view, he's a fool. And according to the other view, he's a, he's a wicked king. The two are not mutually exclusive necessarily, I would add. But in point of fact, what is he fundamentally? And the question about Ahasuerus, who is the character who appears in virtually every scene of the Megillah. The book begins with him, the book ends with him. And one way or the other, he's in virtually every single scene. Um, the question really is about reading the book, in my view, that is, do we try to make sense out of what he does? Is it all calculated? Is the book in general a book that we can think of as people acting out of motives, calculation, etc., Or he's a fool. We don't necessarily look for a motive because he may have no motive. He may be operating in the moment without thinking things through, thinking about possible consequences, etc. And that's an interesting question. How does one read this book in general? So, I would say that there's been a lot of discussion, and I myself have talked about this often over the last many years uh, about 
what we call purposeful ambiguity or Sternberg called gapping. I myself, uh, over 40 years ago, when I first started teaching in Trisha, uh, thought about that idea of intentional ambiguity in the Bible. I personally have, a, have qualified that over the years. But I'm not getting into that now. It's a very interesting question. But if there's any place in our Bible where there is purposeful ambiguity, truly true ambiguity, it's got to be Megillah Esther. And the, the Megillah is essentially, and before I get to the main couple of points I'd like to make this evening, the Megillah is a book, actually, which presents us with a certain kind of world. It's a book in which, unlike other later books of the Bible, which speak about a return to Zion, a building of the temple, whether it's Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, in my view, the plain reading of the text suggests nothing of the sort in the Megillah. There is no sense in the Megillah, in my view, that we speak of a return to Jerusalem, a return to Tzion, the building of the temple. The book begins with Ahasuerus, who, as I say, is king of the world. And the book ends with Ahasuerus. The plain reading of the text suggests this is where we are. And this is where, for the foreseeable future, we are going to be. I would say, in addition to that, the entire culture of the Megillah, and there are many, many examples of this, and we can't get into that this evening, but the entire culture of the Megillah is a culture which in many ways reminds us of the story of Mitzrayim. It's the Egyptian culture of, of the book of Genesis, of Exodus. Um, it's there, of course, in the story of the exile into Egypt, when Yaakov descends to Egypt in chapter 46 of Rashid, that's the last time God speaks until the story of the burning bush when God says, I plan to take you out of Egypt. But being in Egypt is being in a place where God does not speak. And one of the things that typifies the culture of Mitzrayim as the Chumash describes it, it's a place in which there is no memory. People don't remember anything. Joseph's in jail with the butler, he gives the butler the good news that he'll be redeemed, he'll be saved, he'll be restored to his earlier post. Says to the butler, in three days, you're gonna be restored to your post. Remember, it, remember me unto Paro, his Catania Paro. Three days later, the butler, get, butler gets out, but his fellow soulmate Joseph is forgotten. He forgets him, puts him out of mind. It's not a place where people have memory. And that's a very important point in studying the story of Mitzrayim. And in particular, we, I note the fact, which the Medrash already picked up, and many have spoken about this, and I myself have written about it, that the story of Joseph in general is one of the critical intertexts that the Megillah is constantly referencing. So you're talking about, essentially, I would say, being in Mitzrayim with no hope of getting out. That's what it comes down to, with at best an absent God, a hidden God, or maybe a fully absent God, and the Melech, who has his, one might say his temples, because the buildings of Ahasuerus have an eerie similarity to the temple, the Melech is not, is not the king of kings, is not God, but rather Ahasuerus, a human and a very, very flawed human at that. 
And the question the Megillah raises, actually, the deep question of the Megillah, in such a world, which is run by Achashverosh, or his counterparts, in which, in which God seemingly does not speak, maybe he's not even there at all, and you're stuck there, you're not gonna get out. The question the Megillah poses is, how does one function in that kind of a world? How does one retain one's moral compass in a world like that? And the second question would be, probably a related question, how does one function as a Jew in a world like that? The reason the Megillah uh, always intrigued me, I love the Megillah, is not only because the way the story is told with the unbelievable, interesting intertext, etc., but it describes a world, at least for me, is very much the world in which I think I live. God is not obviously present. Others may disagree, but that's how I feel. Uh, one often wonders who calls the shots in this world. And um, how does one function in, in such a world? And I would add something else about the Megillah, which is that in the world of Achashverosh, at the end of the day, he's the one in charge. He's the king. Nothing happens without his consent. But the Megillah speaks of his second, the one who's appointed in chapter three as the chief officer of Achashverosh. He commands everybody to bow down to him, and that's Haman. And Haman, of course, is described in the Megillah as Haman Agagi, Agag being the king of, of Amalek, uh, the enemy certainly of the Jews, maybe the enemy of all humanity as well. So you have a world, this world of Achashverosh, which let's call it a world of, of kind of amoral world, which allows for somebody like Haman, Amalek, evil, to actually exist and perhaps even to flourish. So this is the world in which we find ourselves in the Megillah. And then the question is, twofold question, how does one, how does one function as a moral person? And how does one function as a Jew? That's, what, that's the question the Megillah poses. There's no book like it in the Bible. We know there was a dispute whether to include this in the biblical canon altogether. At the end of the day, fortunately, it is part of our canon, invites, I think, very, very serious study. That's my way of introduction. And let me begin by raising the question about the holiday of, of Purim. The Megillah, of course, is read on Purim, actually read twice on Purim. We think of Purim, we, we think of the Megillah, even though the Megillah itself doesn't actually mention reading the Megillah on Purim. It's a separate, very interesting question. But the tractate that deals with Purim is called Masechet Megillah. And Masechet Megillah is actually about reading the Megillah. It's about Purim. It actually is also about other Torah readings as well. The, the, the laws, the, the ritual of reading the Torah in the synagogue on certain occasions is found essentially towards the end of Tractate Megillah. So the rabbinic move was to look at Purim fundamentally as the day in which we tell the story of Purim or study the story of Purim. And that's part of the observance of Purim. So if we ask ourselves the question, or maybe we ask the Rambam the question or the Shulchan Aruch the question, how, how does one observe Purim? I think the Rambam might say, well, it's a simple matter. On Purim, let's see, we read the Megillah, 
We even read it at night, preparatory to reading of the day. So we read it twice, the primary reading being in the daytime, but the nighttime is a sort of preparation. And then we have a meal, a festive meal. And in conjunction with the festive meal of Purim, two things. We drink at the meal, we have wine at the meal, and we also send, send gifts to friends, what's called Mishloach Manot, because the mitzvah of Mishloach Manot fundamentally is tied in with Sudat Purim. We're sending things that one could eat at the meal. And on top of that, we have gifts to the poor, Matanot or Evyonim. That basically is the way one celebrates Purim, according to the Rambam, according to the Shulchan Aruch. He takes it from the from the from from the from the Gemara, and that's the way. That's the observance of Purim. It's interesting that in the Megillah itself, actually, uh, the Megillah describes in chapter nine of the Megillah the way in which Purim becomes a holiday, and what the Megillah says is that on the year that the combatants that the Jews and their friends defeated the armies of Haman, the day they rested from the war, they declared a holiday, a day of mishtev of drinking and rejoicing. And they also gave gifts to friends. And then Mordechai in chapter nine sends around a, a letter to all the Jews saying two things. First of all, you should, uh, you should give gifts to the poor. Mordechai adds Matanot Levionim in chapter 9, and then he added something else. He said that not all the Jews rested on the 14th of Adar. They fought on the 13th and rested on the 14th, but the Jews in Shushan were still fighting on the 14th. So we have to have a two-day celebration, the 14th and the 15th. The 14th, the day most Jews rested, and the 15th, the days in Shushan rested. So we have a two-day holiday of Purim. The rabbinic understanding is that Jews in walled cities celebrate on the 15th and unwalled cities on the 14th. That's far from obvious from the Gila, from the Megillah. It strikes me that that's not this plain reading of the Megillah at all, but rather that everybody kept a two-day holiday. But be that as it may, that's an interesting side point. But I would say that if you think about the way Purim, according to this definition, is observed, fundamentally Purim given this uh, observance, is not that different from every holiday. From a regular holiday, Pesach. Pesach, you have, we have Torah readings on all the holidays. On Purim, we have the Megillah. We have, we have, we have festive meals. The festive meals on the holidays all involve Kiddush, which typically, and, uh, you know, ordinarily is made on, on wine. We sort of introduced the meal with cocktails, one might say, because it's a special meal. So it's really not that different. And in point of fact, even giving gifts to the poor, it's clear from the Torah that when you go up to Jerusalem to observe the three festivals, you are to take care of not just your family members, but the levy who doesn't have land and the widow and the orphan, etc., and the stranger in your midst. So the idea of giving tzedakah as related to the festivals is found in the Torah already. And it's also found even in the observance, at least of the Ashkenazi community, that on the last day of these festivals uh, recites the memorial prayer of Yisker. And one of the reasons we do that is to, it's an opportunity to give, to give tzedakah. We give tzedakah in memory of or whatever. 
So fundamentally, this definition of Purim puts Purim basically, sets up Purim as a kind of, it's not holiday where you're not allowed to work. It doesn't have what we call Kedusha Tayyol, but fundamentally, it's not that different from a regular festival. That's the, I would call the Purim of the rabbis. That's the celebration Purim of the rabbis. Then we have another Purim, not of the rabbis, but Purim that the Jewish people have observed over time. I say over time because there were different observances over different centuries. But if we just think for a moment about some of the ways in which Jews have celebrated Purim, it's interesting to think about that and then to think out loud about what it signifies. So let's think about the way the Jews, what Jews have done on Purim. First of all, um, the Talmud already says, the Talmud speaks of drinking too much on Purim. They have a story about two Amoraim, one invited the other to his meal, and he drank so much that he actually kills the other Amora, kills him because he was drunk. And then of course, somehow he's, he's resurrected after which he invites him to come back next year and he, and, and he declines. But the drinking, in the words of the Gemara, Adugoyada, until you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai, that's already found in the, in the Talmud in Tractate Megillah. And what's interesting is that in the Gemara, it's excessive drinking, but in the Gemara, the drinking took place at the Purim Suda. But the Jewish people have, not all of them, but many have over time drunk on Purim, not just during the meal, but the idea of excessive drinking on Purim, I'm not recommending it, but the idea of excessive drinking on Purim is something that has been practiced for better or worse over centuries. That's one observance that's very old. Already in the Talmud, it's found that the meal, he drank so much that he actually kills his friend. So the Gemara already understands the dangers of, of, of alcohol or any other drug for that matter. But that's one thing that Jews have done. Jews have done it. I'm not saying that the, that the uh, rabbinic ethical authorities like it, but Jews have done that. What else have Jews done on Purim? Well, there's another practice Jews have, it's discussed in the Shulchan Aruch, and that is that when the Megillah is read, typically in the synagogue, that Jews make a lot of noise. We think of it in terms of Haman. When Haman's name is mentioned, there's a lot of uh, noise making to blot out his name. But they discuss in the Shulchan Aruch, the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch discuss the problem that there's so much noise during the Megillah that you can't hear the Megillah. And there's a major problem. And you have these calendars that say, be very careful, don't make too much noise. You have to fulfill the obligation to hear it. But, you know, there may be such uh, proclamations, but in point of fact, apparently over hundreds of years, Jews have made a lot of noise during the Megillah. Now there's another interesting practice in terms of Purim. We know there is a mitzvah to eat a festive meal on Purim, a Purim Suda. The question is, when do you eat it? So many eat the Purim Suda around lunchtime. This year, Purim falls on a Friday. Some have a custom to start even before lunchtime. All kinds of interesting, but there is another widespread practice. At least it was 
known to be widespread over many years, that one would eat the Purim Suda at the last minute of Purim. You start eating it just as Purim is ending. So that in effect, you are eating the Purim Suda when it's no longer Purim, actually. The great bulk of the meal is eaten after Purim is over. You may have washed your hands five minutes before sunset, but the meal is eaten hour, two hours, sometimes three hours after Purim is over. It is a very, from a strictly, I would say halachic standpoint, a very peculiar custom. Now there's another custom. I'll come back to these all in a minute. The one just list over oh, seven or eight customs, practices that Jews have had over, over the centuries. We know that there's an obligation to give tzedakah on Purim, matanot to find two poor people and give them tzedakah. Uh, the common practice was to give to anybody who asks, no matter who it is, anybody asks for, for money, we presume that they, we don't ask any questions, don't, no questions, even if it appears that the person is undeserving, and that's true of Jew and also non-Jew. On Purim, we give to anybody who asks. Anybody. We don't distinguish. So Matanot Onim includes the Evionim, and probably the majority, but is not limited to that. Then we have a whole other list of very interesting practices that are the folk practices of Purim. One that is very old, it's in Gaonic times, and in some places exists today as well, is that they would appoint, they would call the, the rabbi for the day of Purim, usually a very young person. If the institution or the town had a rabbi, they would replace the rabbi, the leading authority, with some kid who that day would be declared rabbi for a day. And that would, this, this young person, unscoured, would be the rabbi of the day. That's an ancient practice. Then we have another interesting practice on Purim, which has to do with, and already it's discussed, the commentaries discussed this, they're bothered by this, two things. That on Purim, people would take things that don't belong to them. In jokes, in jest, and sometimes, in fact, you could see this, I remember in Israel many years ago, they would walk around and sort of hit people on Purim. They wouldn't, they wouldn't damage them, they wouldn't, you know, but they would go around hitting people in it. So theft and injury, basically. And the Tosafists discuss, how can we justify this? It's only in jest, whatever it is. But that, that kind of behavior was, was uh, if not tolerated, it was recognized that we have so many people who do acting in this, in this way. Then we have something else about Purim, which is the wearing of disguises, masks, masechot. And in particular, was a very common practice was that what they used to call cross-dressing, that men would dress up as women and women as men. That was a very common practice. And last but not least, certainly, is what we call Purim Torah. Purim Torah, uh, sort of what it comes down to is in its rawest form is making sort of a mockery of the Torah. There is a very interesting little uh, book called Masechet Purim. And Masechet Purim, of course, the rabbis uh, did not like it at all. But Masechet Purim, when you open it up, looks like a tractate, any tractate in, in, the, in the Talmud. It has a Mishnah, 
has the Gemara. The Gemara reads like regular Gemara, with all the language of a regular Gemara. On the right side is Rashi. On the left side is Tosvot. It looks, looks identical to any Gemara, and it reads like a Gemara. I think there are three or four chapters there. The first chapter is about, I think it goes with Yoredeich, Orechayim, Choshen Mishpat, Ebena Ezer. The first chapter, the Mishnah starts, Kezayet Haman Shanafa Watol HaKadera. What happens if one olive size of Haman fell into a pot? Is the pot kosher or not? There's a whole dispute about this. And that's called Purim Torah. It takes many forms. Light humor, sometimes not so light humor. These are the ways and there are other ways that Jews have observed Purim over centuries. And now we ask ourselves the question, what do we make of these observances? I mentioned several observances, maybe 10 or so. I want to mention one more that got me thinking about this many years ago. It's found in the Ramah. It's unbelievable. The Ramah says the following. There is a common practice that when Jews dress up for Purim, because dressing up is also a practice, that very often what they would wear was clothing that had wool and linen together, shotnes. So the practice was, Rabbi says there was a practice to wear shotnes on Purim. I presume when they were putting on disguises or whatever. So of course, this uh, raised many eyebrows. Shotnes is forbidden from the Torah. Maybe it's only shotness to Rabban, it's not really shotness. Okay, whatever, whatever terutzin we give. But that got me thinking many years ago, what is that about actually? What does it mean to wear shotness? Assuming that they know that it's shotness, what is that actually about? And that struck me, that's what got me interested in this whole, in thinking about this set of observances, the folk observances. Let me say two things about the folk observances. First of all, I think they are essentially doing two things. I think that if you, we, we, we live in, a, in, in the world and what we try to do is we try to make sense out of the world. We try to, I would say, impose order on the world. In my own teaching, I often wonder when I look at the text and I see many things in the text, I always wonder whether I am imposing order on the text or actually discovering the order that's within the text. And my answer is I have no idea. I like to believe that I'm discovering. Maybe I'm overreading and imposing, but the idea of finding the order in the chaos. And how do we find order in chaos? We, we walk around this world, what do we, how do we order our world? How do we see our tradition ordering the world? Well, you know, there are good guys and bad guys. There's Mordechai and there's Haman. There's Amalek. There are those who are on God's side. Or as Lincoln said, we hope that God's on our side. And those that are opposed to the values. In the Torah, great enemy of God is Amalek, because Amalek preys on weak people. And we are taught not to do that. And we, we order things typically with gender. In the last many years, there's all kinds of questions about that, but in the Bible certainly has a binary system without question. There are men, there are women, it's the first story in the Torah. And that is one way in which we order society. That's another way. 
And then, of course, we have a whole set of rules we call Torah. And we like to, we think, we believe that the Torah is a means to, to, to order the world, to see the world in a certain way, to make sense of the world, to uh, give us guidance about how we should behave in the world. But the folk practice of Purim actually call this into question. You drink, how, how much, what is the excessive drinking about? Until you can't tell the difference between Mordechai and Haman. We think we, we think we can distinguish good and bad, but can we actually distinguish? Torah, you can have Purim Torah. You can have tractate Purim, which is ridiculous. You, it has all the language of, of, of the Torah. Exactly, it reads exactly like the Talmud, but the conclusions are patently absurd. And then of course, men and women, who was, who was, can't tell. So every way in which people typically order the world, the folk practice is raising a question and essentially what it's saying is, you think you live in a world which is ordered. But let me tell you something, the world in which we experience has no Seder, has no order. And in point of fact, I'll get to the second point in a minute, but in point of fact, that is a way to read the Megillah. In fact, I think that's how these, that's the way these practices are reading the Megillah. Because when you, if you were walking in the street and you found this little book in the street, this little book of Esther, and you read it, and it actually has a lot of comedic elements to it, and you sort of get a good laugh out of it. But I doubt if anybody who picked up this book, certainly if you picked up the book in isolation from other books of the Bible, I think the last thing anybody would say is, I see the hand of God here. I see no hand of God here. I see something that takes place quite randomly. And in point of fact, you can read the Megillah that way. The salvation of the Jews in the Megillah, at the end of the day, depends upon the fact, it is contingent on the fact that that night, before the king is invited to the second party with Haman and Esther, he can't sleep. The Megillah doesn't tell us explicitly why he can't sleep. Maybe he had an upset stomach. He can't sleep. So we asked his courtiers to read him from the book of, the book of memories, Sefer HaZichrono. It's a book the king never looks at, generally speaking, because that has a bunch of IOUs in it. Never, but you know, read it to me. Maybe it'll put me to sleep. Maybe hearing I owe this one or that one will put me to sleep. And he happens to hear that Mordechai saved his life. Really, he saved my life? Was he rewarded? At that very moment, someone's in the outer chamber coming to see the king. And he wants to have the king execute Mordechai before lunch so he can enjoy his meal, be happy. One can read that as purely coincidental. If the king had slept, there'd be no Jews. That's a way to read the Megillah. And that is a way of, to read that emerges, I think, from the practice of the Jewish people over centuries. And by the way, I don't mean to suggest that the Jews engaged in these practices are aware of the fact that their practices are suggesting a world with no order, and that the Megillah can be read as a purely set of random occurrences, which fits in very well parenthetically with Achashverosh being a fool. Nothing is planned out. One might speak of the collective subconscious of the Jewish people as possible. But that is a way to understand it. And by the way, 
an interesting study would be to look at the, uh, the uh, Mardi Gras. And the Mardi Gras, of course, is a celebration which the church always tries to outlaw, never, never will succeed. And the Mardi Gras takes place right before Lent, Lent being the 40 days before Easter. And Lent has, similar to Spheros Omer, has a kind of a, a side of mourning, mourning with a, with a U, a sadness to it, a mourning to it. And Mardi Gras is the wild celebration that takes place before Lent, in which there is typically promiscuity, all kinds of other things, a lot of drinking, and the leaders of the church condemn it, and it makes no difference. Condemn it all you wish, it's going to happen. Because it's reflecting something about the way people see the world. Now, I would add something else to these, these many uh, practices of the Jewish people, and that is that it strikes me that in addition to a, a sense of randomness. By the way, all this is done, I think, under the guise of being a little tipsy. You drink a lot, and these are not things we would ordinarily even suggest, at least not in, the, in public, but under the guise of drinking a lot, sort of reminds me of the court fool. The court fool can say whatever he wants, because he's a fool. He can insult the king. He can point out all kinds of things. No one else is allowed to say anything. But the fool, the designated fool, can see the truth as the fool sees it. So on Purim, one day in the year, under the guise of being fools, having drunk a little too much, our practice reflects a view of the world that is counter, I would say, to the standard practice, and certainly counter to the Purim of, of, the, of, the, of the Rambam and of the Mishnah, and of the Shulchan Aruch. But I would go beyond this, actually, and suggest that it's not just that the practices suggest randomness, but the practices actually suggest something else, which is, if you think about the four that I started with, namely, making noise during the Megillah, eating the meal uh, when Purim essentially is actually, is actually over, uh, giving the charity not just to poor people, but to anybody, that actually they're not just other practices, but they are practices that not just different from the halacha. They're actually practices that, that undercut the halacha. You can't fulfill the mitzvah to hear the Megillah unless you hear it, but the noise makes that impossible. You're supposed to eat the meal on Purim, but you're eating it after Purim. You're starting one second before the end. What is that about? And that strikes me that it's about something else. I, it's my hypothesis, I can't prove it, but it strikes me, you know, when you read the Megillah, it's very interesting. You have the king and the king on several occasions is sending out his letters, they're called Svarim. In the first chapter, he sends a letter out after Vashti refuses to come to his stag party. He is advised to send a letter out to all the different states that every man should be the king of his house. Probably that letter didn't accomplish too much, but that's a letter. Then in the second chapter, he's gathering all the young women to come to his harem, kind of be sex slaves or prisoners for life, terrible story. And then he has another set of letters in chapter three that all Jews on the 13th of Adar are to be completely annihilated. 
He says to Haman, do whatever you want. Then he sits down to drink with Haman. The city of Shushan is perplexed. And later, he sends an opposite letter. When Esther says, when he, Esther has convinced him that Haman is his true enemy, so the king says, okay, Haman is killed. Then Esther says, what about the, the Jews? And the king doesn't answer right away. The king is not interested in saving the Jews. But Esther says, listen, if you don't save the Jews, I won't be a very happy playmate. How can, I won't be able to live. You like me, don't you? I like you. Well, if you like me, you got better take care of them also. So write a letter rescinding the first decree. Lashiva Tasfarim. Esther says, let's call off the war. We're peace-loving people. We don't want a war. Please call it off. Can't do that, says the king. Because it was sealed with my, got to be a war. But you know what? You write a second letter, another letter. And the second letter, the Jews have a right to defend themselves and suggesting I'm on the Jew side. And that's what happens. Now, that's a separate discussion about what is going on with this statement. You can't rescind the war, but I support you in the war. That's a, a very interesting. But my point is something else. The king sends around letters. And actually, one of the words in the Megillah is the word dot. Little word, dalit tough. It appears in the Megillah 20 times. Dot is a prominent word in the Megillah, as is the word din, by the way. We have to remember that the word din appears in the Megillah, but another word that appears in the Megillah many times is the word medina. Medina, from the word din, state. State, a place that has laws. Dat vadin, koyode dat vadin. There are many laws. But if we ask ourselves, you know something, there are many laws, but I think we can reduce it to one law. There's one thing behind all the laws, and that is whatever works for the king. The king has a problem with his queen, a law. It's not right, there's a law against that, you know? The uppity woman has to be, has to be, has to be restrained or constrained. Then the king is a little angry, you know, he, he, liked, he liked Vashti. He's, he, his, his anger is abated. Oh, let's send around letters. Let's make a rule. And there's even rules about the beauty treatments. <inaudible> that these women that are dragged to the harem must undergo the rule of the beautification. Six months here, six months there. <inaudible> and then Haman says, you know, there are a bunch of people out there. They have their own rules. They don't particularly care for your rules. It doesn't pay to keep them alive, says the King Talman. So write, you write whatever you want. You write whatever you want. And of course, enables the King later to deny responsibility. But yeah, the, the law is for the purpose of the King. Oh, the, the, the Jews are on your side. Haman is, was a bad guy. Haman's, Haman's armies are still out there. King wants to get rid of Haman's armies says to Esther, you write what is good in your eyes. So of all the rules and all the laws, we can reduce it to one, to one rule, basically. What's ever good for the king? That's the safer. You know, sometimes I, I wonder, I have a cynical side to myself, I will admit it. But when somebody gets up in the synagogue, when the rabbi gets up and talk about the importance of, of, uh, of, uh, of honoring the rabbi. It's very important to give cover to the rub, you know? I'm not saying it's not. But when the rub says that, you gotta wonder about it. 
And I think what the, what we want, we know Achashverosh. Achashverosh is all about himself. People in power, like Achashverosh, it's all about themselves. And I think what the folk are asking the question is, forget about Achashverosh. What about our own leaders? What about our own laws, our own rules, our own halacha? Is that for the greater glory of God? Or is that actually to protect the people making the laws? I'm not saying one way or the other, but I think that the practices of the Jews and probably unbeknownst to ourselves, certainly suggest the possibility. And that thought has often crossed my mind that the, the rules are made by people in power. Yes, some see their charge as, as serving the, the, the people. In theory, that's what the United States is all about, right? We the people. We, we are, we are the, those who govern in theory, but you have to wonder whether the theory and the reality are actually consonant with each other. And here's my point about the practices of Purim. The practices of Purim, in fact, suggest a way to read the Megillah that I think is perfectly valid way to read the Megillah, which is it's a book in which God is conspicuously absent, never speaks. And you can read the Megillah as, how do you function in a world in which God is, not, is uninvolved? And then the Megillah has a very powerful answer. If God is uninvolved in the world, then we have to, we have to play God in the positive sense. Then it's up to us. One might even formulate, then God works through us. Then we have to do God's work in this world. God chooses to work through us, but God's not going to work apart from us. That is a way to read the Megillah, and that's a way to see the world in which we live. That's one way to see the world. Now, there's another way to read the Megillah, which is exactly the opposite. Because we talk sometimes about Hester Panim. The Gemara says, Esther Minayin, But I want to suggest something more than God is there, but operating in, 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 a, in a kind of mysterious way in Hester. In other words, if, if one means by that, that God, that God is, if you petition God, God is distant, yes, but you can still call on God perhaps and God will at times intervene. That's one, I suppose, one definition or one understanding of Hester Panin. But I want in the few minutes that we have together to offer a different possibility for reading the Megillah. And then I'll take comments or questions. The Gemara actually raises the question, how come on Purim, we don't say Havel? You would think that on Purim you say Havel because it's a holiday in which the Jewish people were, were saved, we were delivered, we were almost killed, came very close. So what's with Havel? So the Gemara has different reasons that we don't say Havel, different explanations. One of them is very interesting. They're all interesting, but I'll mention one in particular. Kriyata zeo hirula, says the Gemara. We don't say Hawel because we say the substitute for Hawel, which is the Megillah. The Megillah substitutes for Hawel. So in the next 20 minutes, I will, 15 to 20 minutes, I want to suggest what is meant by Kriyata zeo hirula as a way of reading the Megillah. And that is, what is, what, is, what is this Hawel 
prayer. It's called Hallel HaMitzri, the Egyptian Hallel, we call it. It consists of six Psalms, beginning in Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. That's called Hallel, and the Gemara speaks of it as the Egyptian Hallel. The second Psalm is Petet Yisrami Mitzray. I have argued elsewhere in my Haggadah and, and elsewhere that actually that's one reason perhaps they call it Halal HaMitzri, but actually the primary reason it's called Halal HaMitzri is not because of Psalm 113, but because of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, after we say Hodu Hashem, and then it begins with the verse, Minameitzar Karatika. I call to you, God, out of the Mezer, the narrow places. Answer me with through enlargement. I see myself in a narrow place, I want God to enlarge my possibilities. And actually, in the Torah, in the story of the burning bush, God said to Moshe, I'm going to go down into Egypt. I'm going to go down to Mitzrayim and bring them up from Mitzrayim and bring them to a good and broad land. So the Chumash already contrasted. We have in the Hasidic teachings, but it's in the Chumash. Mitzrayim for the word Mitzah, the narrow space. I'm gonna take them out of the narrow space and bring them in chapter three of Shemot to Eretz Tova Urechava. The person in the Psalm, in Psalm 118, that person sees himself or herself, as being in a narrow place and wants God to enlarge. And then the psalm continues. God is with me, I have no fear. It, it, the psalmist imagines being saved. Then he continues. Other nations have surrounded me. Saviv are all around me. Sabuni gam svavuni. They're truly all around me. Sabuni kidvarim, like bees that surround me. The word sabuni, they're all around me. They push me down. I'm about to fall. I'm just reading Psalm 118. God is my strength. And my redemption. Now that phrase, God is my is actually taken from the Song of the Sea, from Shirataya. It's the first half of a verse in Shirataya. So the person says, it's a person is looking for a personal exodus from difficulties. I'm in the narrow places. I call upon God. I feel myself surrounded on all sides. I have no place to go. And what that recalls, what the psalmist recalls is exactly the story when we left Egypt. When we left Egypt, we find ourselves on the banks of the Sea of Reeds, Yamsuf. How did we get to the Sea of Reeds, actually? It's out of the way. We left Mitzrayim, and we find ourselves standing before the waters. We can't go forward, and we look backwards, and there's Pharaoh and his, and his, and his horsemen coming towards us. We're caught betwixt and between. How did we get to that terrible place? So the Torah says, Vayasev Elohim et ta'am derech hamidbar Yamsuf. Vayasev, God caused the Israelites, God placed us there. Why did God place us there? So why did God place us there? All we can say is that God said to Moshe, 
you, you stay, and Moshe said to the people, you stand by and see God's redemption. I will glorify myself by defeating Pharaoh, my enemy Paro, and all of his horsemen, and all of his chariots, and all of his armies. So God puts us there so that Mitzrayim should run after us, and God, with, with bait, actually. And then God seizes the opportunity. You walk through the waters, the waters part, and the Egyptians, the Paro, is drowned in the waters. So that's what the psalmist recalls in Psalm 118, and the psalmist actually says one of the verses from the Song of the Sea, but doesn't say the second half of the verse. The second half is, this is my God and I will build for God a house and there I will exalt God. And the rest of the psalm, and I can't go into this now, but the rest of the psalm is about the search for the place, for the house, where others are also praising God. Because the psalmist hears voices. And sets out on a pilgrimage to find people with whom the story can be shared. He's looking for the house. Open up the doors, open up the gates. And finally, when this person arrives there, Baruch Abba B'Shem Hashem, Be'rachnuchem Mi Beit Hashem. Psalm 118 is a story. And the story is the story of the personal, it's the personal story of the exodus from the narrow places. And then the search to tell my story. On the night of the Seder, on the night of Passover, there's a mitzvah in the beginning with Saper Bitziat Mitzrayim. That's the first half of the Seder to tell the story. And the second part is Saper Maseyah to say Hallel, which means to share my story with others. That's what Hallel is. It's not my own person, my own personal story, I can say myself. But to share the story, I need other people. That, in my view, is the custom that we start the second part of the Seder, we open the door. It's not for Elio. Elio is later. We want people to come in to hear the story. We want them, we will, the redeemed person wants others to hear the story of, of God's redemption. Okay. What about the Megillah? So, what's interesting is one can read the Megillah in very similar way. Because we have to remember, the protagonist in the Megillah, the enemy in the Megillah, I mean, there are two enemies. Achashverosh is also an enemy. And he has ultimate power. But the one who precipitates the crisis, the one who's going to get us all killed, is Haman. Haman or Agagi. Agag is the king of Amalek. So the the, the, the villain, the main villain in the Megillah is Amalek. In fact, the Torah reading for Purim is Amalek. And in fact, the Haftar for Parshad and Parshad Zachar is Amalek before, before Purim. And the Haftar is about Amalek that we read Parshad Zachar. The Haftar is the story of King Saul and Amalek, how Amalek defeated us in that, in that story. So it's all about Amalek. But how does the Torah define Amalek? God said to Moshe, write this down in the book, a Sefer. That's our Sefer. I will obliterate Amalek from under the heavens. 
and there's a war against Amalek in every generation. So apparently, Amalek is a pretty powerful concept. If the war against Amalek, if God's war against Amalek is from generation to generation, if the war against evil is in every generation, that means evil is a powerful force. So there's another way, let me suggest another way to read the Megillah. More than Hestapanim, more than a distant God, you call on God, God will intervene. No, no, no. There's a completely other way to read the Megillah. And that is God is calling all the shots altogether. God is actually the main player in the Megillah. God calls the shots. You may ask the question, but God is never mentioned in the Megillah at all. How could God be calling the shots? There's not one mention of God in the Megillah. And my answer is, that's not true. There is one mention of God in the Megillah. I present you with my thinking here. So, I mean, nothing that I say you have to accept, but this is what I believe to be a way of reading. Because there's one place, and that is, the Megillah tells us about Mordechai the Jew, chapter 2, verse number 4, Ish Yudi Ayabah Shushan Abirah, Mordechai ben Shimi ben Yermakish Ishimini, he's a Benjaminite. He's Ishimini. Asher Haglami Rushalayim, he's a refugee. He was exiled from Jerusalem. Imagola Asher Haglata, with that exile, the first exile from Jerusalem. Im Yechanya Melech Yehuda. He was exiled with Yechanya. Now we know from the Book of Kings and elsewhere, there were two main exiles, maybe three. But the first one was the time of the king, whose name in the Book of Kings is Yehoyachin. In the Megillah, his name turns into Yechanya. So we know that names are not just names. What does Yechanya mean? Yechanya, what does Lachin mean? Lachin means to prepare. Yah is God's name. He was exiled at the time of the exile of the king whose name was God prepares, Yechanya. And now, what dawned upon me several years ago is that the verb lohachin actually appears in two other places in the Megillah. It appears in chapter one, a play on the word lohachin, as the, the leading advisor to the king who gets Vashti kicked out. His name is Mimuchan. The Midrash identifies him with Haman, by the way, Mimuchan. He's the one who gets Vashti kicked out. And of course, in Vashti's place is going to be Esther. And then later in the Megillah, once, I think even twice, it talks about the fact that Haman has built a gallows upon which to hang Mordechai. But at the end of the day, they hang Haman on the very same gallows. By Yitru et Haman, it says in the last verse of chapter 7, Allah eats on literally the wood of the gallows, Asher Hechin Mordechai which he prepared for Mordechai. So in three different places, we have the idea of Lachim. We have Mimuchan in chapter one, that precipitates Esther. Then we have Yechania. And then we have Haman being hanged on the very eights, which he prepares for Mordechai. And let me explain the concept over here, which I like very much. And I try to give a little evidence towards it. And unfortunately, I have to stop in about seven minutes. I'm going to stop. We started five minutes late. Stop five minutes late. You see, Amalek is God's enemy. So God has a war against Amalek. The, in this reading, God is using the Jewish people 
as bait, actually. God sets the Jews up as bait, and then God will use people, forces, to destroy Amalek. You might say, that's very ni nice of God to set up, up, up as bait, because after all, we were very worried there for a while. We were all crying and fasting and mourning and whatever else. No, well, that's true. But exactly what God does in, in the story of Mitzrayim. He set us up, did God, by placing us at the side of the sea. And we thought there was, was hopeless. We cried out, why should we die here? We'd rather die in Egypt. So God set us up. And what's interesting is the following idea. If you think about the song of the sea, which celebrates God's victory, the song of the sea is completely about God. It's about God's defeat of the Egyptian armies. But if you know the song of the sea, and I, I put it out there, things to think about. But if you're familiar with Shirat Hayam, what's very clear is that the defeat of Mitzrayim is framed in terms of a battle of a powerful God against other, one might say other gods or other forces. We know from our study of the ancient Near East that there were, which describe what happens at the onset of creation. And we know there are a war between different forces. One is called Yam. One is called Tiamat or Tahom. One is called Tanin. One is called Rahav. And these names of these other forces or other gods actually do appear, not in the Torah per se, except in Shiratayam, but they appear in the book of Eov, they appear in the Psalms, they appear in some of our prayers actually. And what God is doing then, what, 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 what the song of the sea recalls, is how God uses these forces like Yam. Yam is the great sea god, but God drowns the Egyptians in the Yam. God drowns the Egyptians in Tahom, Tiamat, Tomot Yechasyumu. Now in the Megillah, who are the two heroes of the Megillah? There are two heroes in the Megillah. Together, this great partnership saves the Jewish people. One is Mordechai and one is Esther. Well, we know that, and it's not far-fetched to assume that this is built into the Megillah, we know that the name Mordechai and Esther, of course, what kind of names are these? for a nice Jewish boy, a nice Jewish girl. Mordechai is Marduk, one of the chief gods of the ancient Near East. And Esther, of course, is Astart. Those are the two of the main gods. So that's exactly the point then. It's not an accident. God, just like Shiratayam. In Shiratayam, God uses Yam and Tahom because God is the most powerful. God uses these forces to destroy God's enemies, which in this case is Mitzrayim, but it recalls that mythical early war in the beginning of time, or before time. And in the Megillah, it's God using Start and Marduk to defeat God's enemies. The Jews are the bait, true. And Mordechai and Esther are doing God's work. That's all true. But the point is, in this reading, it recalls exactly the Song of the Sea, which of course is the blueprint for the Hallel. And what's interesting, and I'll conclude with two other points about the Megillah that, let's put it this way, you may agree or disagree, but it's unbelievably interesting, isn't it? I think so. I've convinced myself. Now the two other things. One is that in the Megillah, the, the entire salvation, deliverance in the Megillah and the key time in the Megillah is the month of Adar. 
the month of Nisan that we think of as the first month, the month of Passover, the month of Pesach, is completely irrelevant to the redemption in the Megillah. And in fact, that's when Haman cast the lot. The day, the, the, the month that we are to remember, not just the day, Hachodesh is the month of Adar. And what's interesting, the word Adar means strength. When you read the Song of the Sea, the verb Aleph, Dawid Reish, is found three different times. Right? And you have um, two, another, two more times. Uh, you have it, and it's the third place as well, three times. So that's, first of all, another, whereas in the Torah, Passover is the key holiday, because it's the day we left Egypt, but of course in the Megillah, you never leave Egypt. You're in Egypt. The world in which we live is the world of Mitzrayim, so you can't celebrate the leaving, nor do you celebrate entering into the land of Canaan, because you're not going to enter, not in this book. The world in which we are for now in the foreseeable future is the world of Achashverosh. And the deliverance and the war in that context is God's war against Amalek. And the Adar then becomes the primary month. And the, to, just to round this out, and there's more here, but I'll stop at this point. The, 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 the heroes of the Megillah, Mordechai and Esther, who I think recall Marduk in the start, but they're also something else in the Megillah. They are from the tribe of Benjamin, Ish Yemini. There are only, there are only uh, two places in the Bible where the word Yemin appears three times in close proximity. One is the Song of the Sea. Yemin Hashem Nedari Bakoach, Yemin Hashem Natito Yemin And the other place, of course, is in the Hallel. Yemin Hashem in Psalm 118. Yemin Hashem Ostechayu, Yemin Hashem Romeima, Yemin Hashem Ostechayu. So basically, that's probably what the Talmud means when it says, you don't say Hallel on Purim. Kriyata Zelhi the very Megillah itself is Hallel. The very Megillah itself is recalling the Hallel, is recalling God's deliverance. God is not a hidden God. Hidden in the sense it's not obvious what God is doing, but not hidden in the sense that God is front and center. And actually, the main protagonist on this reading is actually God, who was fighting Amalek. It's God's war against evil. We are conscripted willy-nilly into God's army, both as bait, and then, if you wish to join God's army and to lead the battle, as Esther and Mordechai do, God accepts your uh, voluntary conscription. But the fact of the matter is, so what, what's my point? Here's my point. What I've suggested is, apart from the typical Hester punning, leave that out. I have suggested two different ways to read the Megillah. And I will conclude with the following observation. I wrote a, I, together with Benzino Vadio, a couple of years ago, wrote a, a commentary on the Megillah, in Liet Kazot, it's only in Hebrew, it's written in difficult Hebrew too, very beautiful Hebrew, she wrote. It's my class is written up in Hebrew. I introduced it with my upbringing. I grew up together with, with uh, survivors of the Holocaust. Tremendous influence on my life. My own family was not that, but the community in which I lived was all survivors, mostly poor people. And actually, I learned an enormous amount from them. Really tremendous influence on my life. You know, 
someone, a rabbi that I very much respect, was once talking about the Shoah and said, you know, I asked so-and-so about, where was God during the Holocaust? And he, he said to me, what are you talking about? He was right at my side. And this rabbi that I respect spoke about that very approvingly. I'll tell you what, my, what I think about that. I have no problem with, with thinking that God was on your side during the Holocaust. As long as you understand that for many people, God was conspicuously absent. And that's exactly what this Megillah is about. The Megillah can be read in two different ways, maybe three different ways. The regular Hesterpanim way, the God who's completely absent. That's the Parshanut of the Jewish people over centuries. And there's another way to read it, which I suggest. Not only is God not absent, it's all about God. It's all about God's war to eradicate evil, in which we are one way or the other involved in that battle. And you can read God as being fully present, as long as you understand that in this book of doubt, of ambiguity, there's another way to read it. So I think that's a very important point about reading the Megillah. And I think it's a pretty important point about living in this world. In the world in which we live, that the Hasidim call Alma de Shikla, the world of falsehood, there are many ways to interpret our world. And this amazing book actually offers us minimally two radically different ways to interpret it. Okay, I'll stop at this point. If anybody has any comments or questions, I can take it briefly. And uh, I went a bit over. From earlier was about um, how we think about Mordechai's statement about the Jews being saved in the end and the conception that we get of an ordered world in, in comparison with some of the things we've been talking about, about order versus, uh, versus chaos, some of the ways in which these customs are playing with inverting some ideas of order. Um, and then... I'm not sure I understood the question. I mean... Uh, well, is, is Laszlo still here? It was his, it was his note. So I don't know if maybe he wants to chime in with, with a bit more information. Yes, uh, I am still here. Yes. Uh, what I was asking is in the interpretation that you made at the beginning, that uh, there is disorder in the world. There is only one ordering force, which is Ahasuerus. And he right. is not uh, very much of, of an orderly force. Uh, uh, the hedonist, the narcissist, the ultimate narcissist. It's all about yeah. himself, right? Yeah. How does one fit uh, then the statement by Mordechai when he says to Esther, "If you don't help, there will be help coming anyway." Right. There is this real statement of order. There is order in the world, and we will be saved. Right. In Question: How do you read that? Right. I, I mean, you know, there are some who read that as, uh, has, uh, they, I, I disagree. Some read that as a question. If you don't do it, you think there's gonna be somebody else, but I don't think that's the meaning. I think what he's saying to her is, look, he, he, has, he has faith. He's trying to convince her to do it. I think the point of that speech, which is to me the critical speech of the whole Megillah, what he's saying to her is something else. That's what I called my book, for such a time as this, and we ate Kazot. Let me just address your, comment this way. There are two heroes in this book. There's Mordechai and there's Esther. What typifies Mordechai in the Megillah is the following expression, every day. He goes, every, it says in the Megillah in chapter two when Esther is taken to the harem, you go every single day to check out and see how she is. 
Shalom Esther. When Mordechai refuses to bow down to Haman, they would tell him every single day, you got to bow down, we're bowing down. He refuses to listen. He sticks to his principles. He's a steadfast Jew, it's every day. Then there's another kind of Jew, is Esther. What does Esther observe? In Pshuto, shall make her in the Megillah. Answer, zero. She observes nothing. And the best proof is after five years in the court, no one knows she's Jewish. And her first instinct, what she hears that all the Jews are going to be killed, if she hears all the Jews are going to be killed, is to send calling to Mordechai. That's her first instinct. She observes nothing. She's a different kind of Jew. And her, her task in this world is Ba'itazot. She has one mission in this world. It's not to eat kosher food. Her mission is to save the Jewish people. And this is your time and place. That's what Mordechai, and I think everybody has that, has that same mission. I think we all have a, a mission in this world. Sometimes we don't know what our mission is. Maybe often we don't. How do you know what your task is? Two don't, don't logically contradict each other. But Mordechai is saying, listen, this is why you became the queen, perhaps. Mordechai, by the way, did not say for sure. It's very important. Let me just say one more thing, which is not directly related to your question, but it's very important for the Megillah, which is chapter four, which is the key chapter where Esther takes upon herself this responsibility and danger to save the people. It begins with the verse, and Mordechai knew what was happening. Mordechai yadat kosher nasa. So he's, and then Esther doesn't know. Esther sends messengers to the street to know. And then Mordechai says, you got to go to the, beg the king. And Esther says, everybody knows you can't just go into the inner chamber without permission, you'll be killed. It's like the Holy of Holies. You, every, everybody knows. So Mordechai knows everything that's happening. You know what Mordechai is the Jew? He turns his internet or the paper. What's happening to the Jews? That's his first instinct. Afterwards, you read the general news. Esther knows all the intricacies of the court and all the rules, knows nothing about the Jews. At the end of it, Mordechai says, this is your obligation. What will be in the future? Maybe someone else will save them. But this is your responsibility right now. Right now, you're the only one. So it's your response. And then he says, Umiyodeya. And who knows, he says, maybe this is why you became the queen. And that's very important. Miyodeya. The bottom line is we don't know. Esther says herself, I will go to the king. If I perish, I perish. You do the right thing, not because it's, you're assured of success. Quite the opposite. Kasher avadati avadati. Achashverosh has in his court yodei ha'itim in chapter one. Those who know the times, yodei ha'itim. And Mordechai says, umiyodeya imriyet kazot. Who knows? To have faith is to do the right thing despite the consequences. And that's very important in the Megillah. So I don't think he's saying for sure. He hopes, he wonders, he prays. Judaism is at its core a kind of optimistic religion. It believes humanity can be redeemed. I wonder about that, but that is the Jewish view. It talks about Mashiach, it talks about better times. We think the world can get better. But in the Megillah, and this is very important, what Mordechai says, we don't know. So that's one of the guiding words. Maybe the guiding word of chapter four is exactly the word to know. Mordechai knows one thing, Esther knows something else. 
Esther wants to find out what that at the end do the right thing. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. Will I succeed? And Esther says, I'll go. I'll go. I'll break the law, so called law. I'll break the law. If I perish, I perish. But it's the right thing. I accept your charge. I accept your teaching. And I'm going to go save the Jewish people. But she does it her way. Doesn't, doesn't go. She has her own plan. But she accepts the responsibility. That's what I would say to your question. Okay, I think I'll take one more question. Can I, yeah, have one, one comment to make about what you were saying, you said earlier. For some one rabbi thinks Hashem was really after and they have to recognize others weren't. That it seems uneven in the universe. I've had occasions where I felt Hashem was really there for me, and I'm wondering why. What, what did I do that's so great? Meanwhile, there's somebody I think is much better than me, and he doesn't seem to have any luck, or doesn't have Hashem. So it's really confusing. It's very confusing. I would say, having grown up with survivors, I, there was a very common feeling about many of the people who I spoke to. They always wondered, why was I saved? My family perished. Very good people perished, much better than myself. Why me? I think that's one of those questions that, the fact that they asked the question itself spoke well for them. And I have a very simple answer, which is umiyodea. What do we know, really? We try to do the right thing as best we can with the knowledge that we have. You know, you know I'll, I'll, I'll just conclude with one last note about, you know, you hear a lot about, we have to believe in science. And let me just, uh, in terms of the vaccinations and stuff. And of course, of course, that's true in the sense we have to believe based on the information we have at present, the data that we have at present, we're going to operate on the data we have at present. There's no such thing as believing in science. The scientists change their mind all the time, but it's based on data. It's based on information. It's based on knowledge, the knowledge that we have. No one has all the knowledge. So we, we, we operate in this world based on what we limited beings know. We have no other way to operate. We can operate based on what we know, on what someone else has taught us that we have faith in, what seems to make sense, what seems to be the right moral thing to do. At the end of the day, we understand umiodea, which is what this book is saying. And we don't know the consequences. We're not sure it's gonna work. It does work amazingly. That night, the king couldn't sleep. So maybe next Purim, hopefully I'll be around and give another share on that. That, that itself is very central. We are, have been blessed with a little book called Megillat Esther. I just scratched the surface this evening. It's a, one of the more amazing books of our tradition. And I'm very grateful that we have the opportunity to study it and through the Megillah to reflect upon the world in which we live. Thank you very much.